Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, acclaimed writer and creative writing teacher Paula Morris appears at Going West 2018 as the Sir Graham Douglas Orator. Paula addresses the festival theme with her ruthless wit and passionate commitment to the craft of writing. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, nā mahi nui, kia koutou katoa. Ko Paula Morris, aho, and I'm going to try and do this without my glasses. I've got them here just in case. Just in case sense overwhelms vanity. I'm very honoured to be giving the keynote address tonight. Uh, within the literary world, we often talk about our delicate ecosystem in New Zealand writing, publishing and book selling. It's small and beautiful, it's tenacious, but it's threatened. And people like the late Sir Graham Douglas and his family help us to persist and to thrive. As Mark was saying, the theme of this year's festival is spread the word. And tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means to me and what it might mean to you. Spread, I think, is the important notion here. It reminds me of the way we understand whakapapa, because all of us as descendants of other people have an an inheritance, our ancestors themselves, our tūpuna, and the lines to them are unbroken. And there are many lines, like the lines that make up a net. When we think about spreading the word, again we see a net, not a line. We're a community here at Going West in Titarangi this weekend. We'll take away what we hear and interpret, what provokes and unsettles us, what resonates and what challenges. We spread these questions and subjects through our own creative work, our conversations, our networks, our families. Now, all of us here are taking part in the festival, not simply attending it. You are not a passive audience, are you? And most of the artists participating this weekend will be interviewed or taking part in panel discussions. So anything can happen, anything can arise, Anything can be disputed or reconsidered. I'm giving a prepared speech now, but most artists this weekend will not. Festivals may have a formal structure, but they are fluid within these confines. Within we'll find rivers bursting banks, surging tides, streams popping and gurgling, confluence and divergence, deeper channels, new routes, Our challenge this weekend is to be open to changes of direction to go with the flow, if I haven't hammered this metaphor enough. But as you know, I'm not here just to be lyrical. Now, I've been accused of many things in my adult life, of being too emotional, too aggressive, too secretive, too racist. Uh, My students regularly accuse me of being too mean, I'm the kind of person who will not let things lie. I wake the sleeping dogs. I'm the writer of letters that point things out. I squabble with people on Twitter and with colleagues via the University of Auckland email system. At restaurants and cafes, I always send back food that isn't hot enough. 
I have made myself unwelcome at a particular bar that shall not be named, and at a particular lawyer's office on Lincoln Road, and at the St. Luke's branch of the ASB. <laughs> and my sister too. Why am I telling you this? And it's not just to prove that I'm really not secretive. I want you to understand before I launch into my words manifesto that I'm a passionate person of strong views. It means I don't have many friends here, but that's okay. That's why Netflix and Candy Crush were invented. <laughs> also, I started Maori weaving last year, which is why I drive around with a large knife in the glove box of my car in case I spot any good flax. And that's why I carry the knife. Really, you don't have to avoid me at supper. But above else, above all else, I'm a writer and language is my medium. I care profoundly about it, what it means, what it suggests, how it sounds, how it works together. Without language, I can articulate nothing. What I create as a writer, which may be a book or a story or this talk, I do word by word. And yet the work and the play of writing, the business of language and how we deploy it is often devalued in favor of the idea. And when imagination is discussed, it's in terms of ideas and coming up with them rather than in use of language. Now, creativity, as you know, is an increasingly debased word. It's overused in a business context as something to be bought and sold. We have ideas, therefore we are creative. It's all about the light bulb moment. And in fact, if you search on the internet for images of the word idea, you'll discover picture after picture of light bulbs. Now, you know, not even the light bulb itself was invented in a light bulb moment, but still we persist. Now, a focus on ideas, I think, reinforces the romantic notion of inspiration as the heart of artistry. Creativity has the value, this argument goes, not technique or expertise or insights, not experimentation, not trial and error, not collaboration, not revision. We venerate the idea and those who wave them at us in triumph, proof of their innate creativity. And we devalue the next steps of all that it takes to realize or implement or execute or articulate or explore. I've taught creative writing for 15 years, largely at universities in the US, the UK and New Zealand, as well as for school and community groups all over the world, uh, from Belgium to China to Latvia. Now, aside from a few unwilling school pupils who'd rather be running wild outside, the majority of participants in my workshops choose to take part. Most like to write, many think of themselves as writers. In my master's class at the University of Auckland, many of the students are already published. Uh, one of them, Amy McDade, is reading from her novel manuscript here tomorrow morning. I can see her. I haven't even got my glasses on. Um, I really urge you to attend. She won our Sir James Wallace Prize last year, and her novel is very dark and funny and compelling, and a lot of it is set here in West Auckland. Titarangi doesn't come out well, I have to tell you. <laughs> but when does it? But in many other classes and groups all over the world, I experience a resistance to the art and to the act of writing. 
the most crucial elements of creative writing demand access, access to language and access to the imagination. Without facility of language, the writer is inarticulate and expression is stunted, derivative, impossible. Without the embrace of imagination, the writer remains on the surface, unable to explore the subconscious darkness. Now, as children, when we're running around outside or sequestered in our rooms, or playing bull rush, apparently, we understand instinctively the imaginative possibilities of play and the role imagination plays in processing our fears and our questions about the world. But the resistance I've described shows up in many creative writing classes, too many, that involve actual writing. Given an exercise prompt, some of the writers will object. Some will sit thinking rather than using their pens as though they can think their way to good writing. Some will ignore or disobey the prompt or wander away in their written response, even if a model is given. They will use the time of the exercise to construct an elaborate on-ramp rather than swerve straight onto the road as it demands. Now, prompts for writing exercises, I believe, should be very short and specific, and this makes them difficult. In the same way, I am told that a crunch or a sit-up can be a small movement that is strenuous and targeted. <laughs> the first challenges of the creative writer are technical. They begin with words. In the book Reading Like a Writer, Francine Prose describes discovering that writing, like reading, was done one word at a time, one punctuation mark at a time. She says it required what a friend calls putting every word on trial for its life, changing an adjective, cutting a phrase, removing a comma and putting it back in. It's surprising, she says, how easily we lose sight of the fact that words are the raw material out of which literature is crafted. How can we articulate what we want to say unless we're vivid and precise with language? How can we convey our vision of the world or world unless we choose our language with care and imagination. Bland prose that relies on cliches suggests a lazy mind, a lazy writer. Why do we want to write if we don't want to write? Now, sometimes people think they want to write, don't they? But they just really want to be or to have published. Ideally, a blockbuster that will be made into a movie. <laughs> and not a New Zealand movie either. Um, they have a number of ideas and they believe that ideas are the thing, or they have a lot of feelings and they believe feelings are the thing. Creative writing, they think, will allow them to express these ideas and feelings. Not in my classes, okay. Now they know how to write a sentence, they think, or at least a phrase. They wouldn't venture so boldly, I think, into a practical class in visual art or architectural filmmaking because they're wary of these other technical skills that might be in demand beyond basic literacy, ideas and feelings. Now, I don't really believe in ideas, as my students know, not in the context of creative writing. I believe in daydreaming and obsessing and mulling over. I believe in things swirling around in our heads like socks in a tumble dryer, rolling around until one plasters itself against the window. I believe in zoning out, wandering, pilfering, eavesdropping, drifting, spying, I believe in experience and invention and getting lost in working out the puzzle. 
I believe in passions and obsessions, dreams and nightmares, shadows across your subconscious. And everything goes into the tumble dryer of the mind and eventually something coalesces that can be formed into art. We don't need to wait for the light bulb moment and what that implies, I think, about ideas and inspiration as something external dangling from the ceiling above us. What we need is already inside us, churning away in the dark. We need to be alert and present in the world, taking everything in, sensory experience in every facet. And then, if we're writers, we need words. Now, ideas, I've argued on many occasions to the increasing boredom of people, uh, are the enemy of the creative writer. Because one of the main issues I face with students of all ages and all contexts is people telling me they get stuck. They run out of steam after a few pages or a few chapters because they've started with an idea and that's the one thing they don't really need. Um, I was quote the American writer Robert Olin Butler. He exhorts his students to stop thinking. He says, please get out of the habit of saying you've got an idea for a story. Art does not come from ideas. Art does not come from the mind. Art comes from the place where you dream. Art comes from your unconscious. It comes from the white hot center of you. So think about our ideas sizzling within us as the pressure on the page that we don't need to be able to understand or articulate in some kind of statement of intent. Our work is bigger than us and deeper and more intelligent. We don't get the chance to explain it to every reader picking up a book in a shop or a library or browsing online, and this is just as well, is it not? Because we will be arguing with readers all the time. I'd like to return now to the notion of imagination, to reclaim it from the strident battalions of the idea. All of us here this weekend need imagination to engage with the words flowing in the room beyond their literal meaning, to make our own associations and connections and sparks, and to continue weaving our larger nets. Imagination in writing is too often defined as making things up, a story, a world, a crazy thing that happens. This is why perhaps we put so much emphasis on ideas. I have an idea for a story. Well, great. Like opinions, ideas abound. I like to quote uh, the rap artist, Lady Sovereign. Well, everybody's entitled to opinions. I open my mouth and shit, I got millions. <laughs> She's an English rapper. <laughs> Writing is a concrete act, not a theoretical one. It takes time and skill. With more practice, we can get better. And this is how exercises, however much aspiring writers resist them, can help. To, to many creative writing apprentices, the techniques of the fiction writer, for example, are still a mystery. Conveying three-dimensional characters and moving them around a room, writing plausible dialogue with a dramatic function, exploring all possible aspects of setting, remaining consistent within point of view, working the emotional and dramatic moment, all of these are challenges. Now, if you add the pressure of the idea, weighed down by its ostentatious epaulets of originality and invention, and apprentice writers crumble. They prioritize the idea because it seems to speak of voice and vision, but they're unable to realize it. So abstractions replace concrete detail, and the resulting stories are didactic, 
derivative or sketchy. This prioritization of the idea over story skills helps explain the resistance to exercises with tight constraints. Symbols and abstractions feel grand and important. Describing a small rock in the road does not, especially if you're working within a time uh, word limit. Many apprentice writers rebel against describing a small or ordinary thing because it's boring. How can it help them? They want to write a searing indictment of this or an emotional dissection of that, not bother with the shape of a rock or the color of a backpack or the texture of carpet. The challenge is both beneath them, because they are artists with ideas and feelings, light bulbs flashing like a halo around their heads, and also because it's too difficult. Uh, when I taught in Scotland, uh, where it rains constantly, I was working with students on a reduced version of John Gardner's famous exercise to describe a lake from the point of view of someone who has just committed a murder without mentioning the murder. So it's a point of view exercise that asks the writer to locate conflict and atmosphere and reveal point of view through the setting description alone. Now, it's a difficult but very useful exercise. And of course, one student was vocal in her criticism. We would never do this in a real story, she complained. And she said this every week about everything I asked her to do. <laughs> and I would say, we don't see tennis players doing sit-ups during matches, but it doesn't mean they don't do them during training as I would have no idea. <laughs> a lot of rude laughter in this room. Now I'm living back in Auckland, my hometown. Uh, when I'm not working or arguing or lolling around the house watching German supernatural mysteries on TV or slashing at things with knives, I teach creative writing in schools. Now this is something many artists do to spread the word. How can we excite and stimulate the artists of tomorrow how can we pass on technical skills? How can we help instill a passion for our materials and their possibilities? I also feel very strongly that too many of us here like to throw up our hands in despair and demand to know why without really considering the complexities of why or having any notion about the context or the steps being taken to address the particular crisis of the day. Why are there not enough Maori or Pacifica or Asian and or queer voices in our national literature? Why are the evil gatekeepers doing this and not that? Why don't we read our own writers of this or of that? Why aren't our books published in this place or that? Why, why, why? Well, there are many reasons starting with colonialism, and those would form the subject of another address entirely. But let me say this, we can't lament that the field is bare when we haven't taken the time to sow the seeds. Since 2015, when I returned to New Zealand, I visited quite a few schools for ongoing writing projects. Now, one-offs are fine, but it's the longer-term relationships that start having impact. Uh, my partners in these have been the New Zealand Book Council, for the past two years, the Auckland Writers' Festival, which is always looking to broaden its reach and make it possible for low-decile schools to get free entry and transport to its school days. It's also keen to encourage and enable keen young writers. Uh, my colleague, Selena Tusitala-Marsh, and I also have direct relationships with a number of schools. When we were growing up, she attended Avondale College, and Suri and I attended Rutherford College, then high school, here in the West. So we understand the power of getting in front of kids 
and reminding them that university can be part of their future, that this city belongs to all of us, and so does its monuments and institutions. This is what spreading the word means, showing up and reaching out, connecting and communicating. Selena, by the way, was head girl of Avondale College. I was not head girl of Rutherford. <laughs> She's a girly swat. Um, this year, I've been working with Rebecca Coonan and the Henderson Massey Local Board on the Outside the Square project with students at Rutherford and at Henderson High. Two of my former creative writing students, Rachel O'Connor and Ruby Porter, worked with small groups of young writers at these schools over two months. And both Ruby and Rachel are very talented writers with novels coming out next year. And they've also been through the austere labor camp that is my approach to pedagogy. Now, the results of the students' work you can see in this little book right here, right now, uh, launched last weekend in Henderson Council Chambers. A thousand copies of it are being distributed at public collection points in West Auckland, and we have many copies here tonight, so please pick up one. It's free, and it's amazing. Now, I spoke earlier about the kaupapa of working small, that is, exercises that have very strict constraints. Now, this may seem counterintuitive when you're trying to encourage young writers. Shouldn't we just want them to write something, anything? Aren't any words better than none? Well, sometimes. But not when we're aiming for writing excellence and to push writers in the one thing they absolutely need, language. I don't want to patronize young writers by deciding in advance how little they can achieve. So for this school project, we confined ourselves to creative nonfiction, that is, true stories that employ the techniques of fiction, like point of view, scene, narrative shape, character, setting, dialogue. Now, what I've found with young writers is that they see imagination as something that only applies to fiction. It's about making stuff up, they tell me. Now, this often slows them down as they have to sit waiting for ideas and inspiration. They need to think, which isn't easy when you have me there shouting, stop thinking at them. Now, the results are often derivative, reflecting the books they read or the games they play or the movies they see, or they're generic and vague. They're pocked with the black holes of the unimagined. Um, at another school in a different part of Auckland this year, we really stumbled with fiction. When I asked them to describe a fictional city, they went for very vague sci-fi. Now, this is one of them, and it's not bad. Buildings of glass gather around the center of the city. Skyscrapers tower over shopping centers and apartment blocks. Clipped to every structure is a carbon collector. Streets aligned with fruit trees. So that's okay, yes, for a 14-year-old. But here's the same writer describing a place she knows, and this is her grandmother's home in Fiji. Wild flowers grow beside a door in front of a blue picket fence. Up roughly made concrete stairs, there's a blood-red terrace with peeling paint. Through the door, handmade from rusting steel rods, Rooms are decorated with plastic doilies and dusty furniture. From the kitchen door, a steep slope of spiky grass leads to a field of sugarcane. Now there's more precision with detail and more imagination, I'd argue, in the latter. So for the Henderson and Rutherford sessions, we opted to focus on creative nonfiction exercises 
like the ones I do with my undergraduates every week to help develop the elements of storytelling. Writing the truth subverts our understanding of imagination and reclaims it from an association with ideas. We need imagination in how we interrogate ourselves and describe the world. We need imagination to nurture stories, and we can begin with our own sensory experience, the places we navigate every day, the people we recognize, everything both above and below the surfaces of the city. When apprentice writers are freed from the demand to imagine a place or a time or a person, to spirit something unknown out of the whirling cloud of ideas beyond their reach, they can focus on the first steps they need to take as writers, articulating the world they've experienced without wordiness, without abstraction, and cracking the seal on their memories and imaginations. I'm just going to read you a couple of little excerpts from right here. My street is very quiet. You never hear anything but the occasional car and a chirp or two coming out of trees. But at the end of the road, there's a hill, and at the top of the hill, there's a creaky old bench. From there, you can see over the treetops to the sea. There's a salty taste in the air. Every day at 3.50 p.m. on the dot, an old man with yellow-tinted glasses walks past with his staffy. We have a little chat, but he never sits. Here's another excerpt from another student. There's a creepy square house on the corner, its windows lined with yellow tinfoil. An old man lives there, though I've never seen him, and we speculate about what dark stuff he gets up to in there. My mother says he's not evil. He's just convinced the British royal family is targeting him with lasers. <laughs> when we first moved in here, we were told that the neighbors in the house with the huge stone walls were drug lords. You see why I get them to write this stuff? Okay. I was going to read the full piece of the booklet, but I do need my glasses. Oi. This is a Te Araki Monsel. I'm going to read you the whole piece because it's fantastic. Whenever I see my grand, she's either cleaning or cooking. Every day after school, she used to stretch this lovely taffy for me. It was chewy and sweet, and then one time I bit into her wedding ring. Her favorite shirt is bright pink, and she's always wearing a grin from ear to ear. Although she's getting old, she's still got a straight back. She can talk for hours and she has no patience with stupidity. She's quick as a whip and she doesn't take crap from anyone. One time I came home with the results of a school test. I'd failed and I knew my grandmother would be mad. Instead of yelling at me though, she took me for a drive. We passed some homeless people and she pointed them out to me and said, if you don't get good grades, this will be you. <laughs> So last week at the launch, I met Tauraki again, and I met his grandmother. She was with him, and from his description, I was expecting someone old. But needless to say, she was not much older than I am. <laughs> I think she was 60 maximum. Anyway, I'm really delighted with the work collected in this little book and the windows it opens into the imaginative and real worlds of our young writers. They laboured away on small exercises around moments, colours, sensory experiences. They dug deep into their own points of view, how they made sense of the world. They were challenged on word choice. Are you giving me the five minutes? I'll give you the five minutes. <laughs> I can't really see you, Nicola, without my glasses. 
Um, they wrote, they rewrote their pieces, they saw how they were cut and edited, and now they're seeing what it's like to have their words published and spread around. Now, this is not as sexy as the big idea. Writing a series of short, intense pieces took weeks of work and demanded trial and error over and over again, rather than a light bulb moment. This approach may not feel like creativity because it imposes constraints and asks prose writers who sometimes resist compression to consider every word. Students often tell me that they could pack much, much more into their pieces if only I would double or triple the word count. But no, I'm asking them to be vivid and precise and concrete and to make every word count, to renounce chattiness, to not ramble on, to use imagination to enter a moment rather than to whirl around it being general and vague and lyrical. Now, the next step in this program, the next room, if you like, in my house of pain, uh, is to continue to working with some of the to continue working with some of the young writers from a number of different schools, mainly years nine and ten, who haven't had the joy crushed out of their life by NCEA. Uh, my A Thousand and One Nights project, which is supported by the Auckland Diversity Fund, asks young writers to rewrite stories from the Arabian Nights like Alibaba and Aladdin, scene by scene, but to set them in a contemporary Auckland that's recognisable to them. Their streets, their neighbours, their lives. This removes the demand of devising plot as the story points are already there, so they get to do less thinking and more imagining. I've been working on various iterations of this for two years, and it's a challenge for the writers. I should tell you, though, that so far, um, Kasim, Alibaba's wealthy brother, always ends up living in Mission Bay. <laughs> now, when I talk to student writers, I promise I'm finishing quite soon, I think. Um, I say that creative writing is an art, but it's also a discipline. It's play as well, but the notion of creativity does not preclude work, and it doesn't mean your first impulse is always right. I was going to quote John McPhee, but may I just urge you to read what John McPhee has to say on this matter. Now, when I'm writing, it demands my full attention the way my dollhouse once did. And I speak as someone who only stopped playing with dolls because I was going to university. And I've always regretted that, um, because not going to university, stopping playing with dolls. <laughs> because once you've crossed the line from childhood play, it's very difficult to go back. You're forced to grow up and become a novelist which sadly does not include quite so much hair brushing. Um, right now I'm finishing work on a novel called Yellow Palace. I have other books available for you to buy, of course. Um, it's taken me years to write it because I need a lot of time for daydreaming and imagining, for the arguments outside, inside my head, for research, for procrastination, for experimenting and playing around, and also because, like most writers, I also have a day job. I'm writing my novel word by word. I never wait for the arrival from on high of inspiration, for the flash of a light bulb moment. The story and the characters who make it are inside me, turning, turning, turning. I have subjects and questions rather than ideas, and I have language. The terrible secret about stories, says the American writer Ben Marcus, is that they are made of language entirely. Nothing else goes into them. Stories are language-made hallucinations. Character is a piece of language slapped to life by a writer. So is plot and setting and conflict. These are acts of language rubbed over the air to make people appear. The story writer, he says, is an artist of language.
So my challenge to you this weekend is to engage with that artistry of language and leave here determined to spread its riches. Buy a book and give it to someone else. Tell other people about something you heard or a discussion that provoked you. Those of you with children in your family, sit them down and ask them to write a vivid, concrete description of an old person in their life, a family member or a neighbor, not, not their teachers. I mean, someone really old. Um, look up words together and discuss what they mean. Read aloud together. Teach them the names of places in our city. Explain that there are two harbors, which a startling number of young people do not seem to know and are unable to name. Interview your old people. Write down your family stories. Embrace te reo and make it part of your everyday life. Ko te kai o te rangatira, he kōrero. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.